Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. Actually, we're going to move around some this morning as we look at some Advent uh, theme messages for the next several weeks here, and um, we'll tie in a bit of what we've studied in, in Luke as well, but go ahead and turn to Revelation 22, and uh, so the words of Christ as he finishes this amazing Revelation that he entrusted to John and John wrote for us. I'll invite you to stand as we read, please. Revelation 22. And we're going to start reading at uh, verse 12 and just read down four verses. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright and morning star. So the grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So in thinking about the person of Christ and the season of Advent as we remember his coming into the world, I, I want us to do something maybe we don't do a lot Um, partly because we don't have a lot of uh, information given to us about what the existence of God in eternity past would have looked like. What, What was the existence of Christ prior to his coming as our Messiah, as a human baby? And even before anything was created, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about such things because they are so beyond us. They are so oftentimes mind-boggling, but there are some things we can know for sure about the pre-existence of Christ. And so this morning I want us to behold the eternal Son. Um, you know, at Christmas time we think about Jesus in the manger, the baby who came, but this morning let us think for a few moments about Christ the Eternal One, the one who did not come into existence at Christmas, but rather clothed himself in human flesh uh, from all eternity. And it is a, uh, a, a mind-boggling reality for us, but I do believe that there are things we can say for sure about uh, this pre-existence of Christ, and that can be a tremendous comfort to us who know nothing but change and transition and oftentimes uncertainty in our own lives, 
we have a Savior who is eternal, who has always been. And so uh, I know that you know, most of us know that when we talk about the, the identity of Christ, that we must also acknowledge that he is the God-man, that he is God in flesh. But do we truly believe that? Are we truly convinced of this identity of Christ from his word? Or do we just recite what we know we ought to say um, because we've been told that is the Christian perspective? And so I hope this morning um, that you begin to truly uh, be more and more convinced in your own heart about the identity of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think even as I continue to study and, and learn more about what does it mean fundamentally to be a Christian, like what are we ultimately to be about, I continually come back to the fact that we are to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. If we could summarize the entire Christian life, the entire reason for which we are made, that would be it. We are made to behold the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. And, and so our greatest battle is that we will turn to lesser things. We will again and again want to carve out cisterns that hold no water. And, and we must continually bring ourselves back to beholding Christ. Um, and it is through him that we see the fullness of our God. Um, this, of course, as you think about God as the eternal one, God as the one of a kind, he is in a category all on his own, it would make sense that, that we would be made to behold him if everything has come from him. It would make sense that he is in fact the most beautiful, the most valuable being in all of the earth. And yet we can often forget that. One man, Robert Layton, said, the more a soul looks upon Christ, the more it loves and still the more it loves, the, um, and, and the more it loves, the more it delights to look upon him. And so there is this unending uh, joy in looking upon Christ, and the more that we come to know him, the more our hearts hunger for him, long to know him, long to be with him. And this is where our greatest battle often is, to keep our eyes fixed upon our Savior. So before we think about what did the pre-existence of Christ look like? Um, just need to make sure that we understand that we are talking about one God and three persons, and Jesus himself identifies as one of the persons of this God. You see in Revelation, Jesus himself using this phrase, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, in verse 16, identifying himself, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about these things. Jesus, even though sometimes in his earthly ministry it was veiled, he openly declared himself as the God-man, as the eternal one, as the one who was before Abraham. And so, when we talk about Jesus Christ, we are not uh, we are not saying that he is created from God in the sense that he has a beginning, but rather in his humanness, he has a beginning, but in his divine nature, he is eternal. 
He is one with the Father and the Spirit. And sometimes we can be guilty of thinking of God maybe as uh, there's a God and then there's kind of each person of God is one-third, you know, like Jesus is one-third God and the Spirit is one-third God and the Father is one-third God and together they make up the, the, the entirety of who God is. Um, but that's not the biblical view either. It is that each are 100% God and yet distinct in their person. And so it's, um, as, as James White said, it is... Um, there is one being, and in that being, three distinct persons, and this is the doctrine of the Trinity. We've seen this in Luke, as you um, will recall. Revelation 22 here is not the first time that Jesus would indicate to us that he is eternal, that he is one of the persons of the God Godhead. Um, you recall, even in Luke 1.16, when the angel's talking to John the Baptist, and he tells him this, he says in Luke 1, 16, and he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Who will, who will John go before? He will go before the Lord their God. John would be the forerunner to God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, we could continue to, to go on that, that again and again the Gospels declare to us Jesus is not simply a man, but rather the eternal one, God becoming flesh. The angel said that John will run before the God of creation, the one who is the Lord of Israel, the God of Noah, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, the God of Joseph, the God of Moses, who would lead his people out of Israel, the God of Joshua and Gideon, the God of Samuel and David, the God of Solomon and Ruth and Esther, this God who works in the people of Israel in the Old Testament, this is the one whom John would prepare the way for. And so we see that Christ did not come into existence at Christmas, but rather he steps down from the glory of heaven into an earthly body, and there he carries out his ministry. But we must understand that he is the eternal one. Um, just one passage to turn with me. I think this, if you want to think, well, how do we see this, you know, that Christ is the true God. How do we see that in the scripture? If you go to Psalm 102 for a moment, one of the, the amazing ways that it, we can see it in the scripture is when you find in the Old Testament passages that clearly are describing God to us, and then the authors of the New Testament use that very passage in referencing Christ. There is no other way to, to, to understand what they're saying other than Jesus is that God. He is one in the same. Psalm 102, uh, verse 25 reads this. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servant shall dwell secure. 
their offspring shall be established before you. Clearly, that's talking about our Creator God, the Eternal One, the One from whom all things have come. Um, even a Jehovah's Witness would acknowledge this is Jehovah God. This is not an angel. We cannot say this of any angel. That would be blasphemy. But now, as you turn over to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews for a moment, look what the author of Hebrews does with this same passage. Hebrews chapter 1. In describing Christ whom he says, through whom God has spoken in these last days by his Son. In Hebrews 1, verse 8, the author quotes this passage as part of him describing the Lord. And specifically, uh, verse, verse 10 is the one we just read from the Psalms uh, 102. It says, Hebrews 1.10, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will row them up, and a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Talking of God the Son. And so that's one example. There's many more we could point to to affirm the identity of Christ, the deity of Christ. Um, so assuming that now that you, that you are um, tracking with me, that you say, yes, he is God, he is not simply a creature, he must be the God-man, what can we say about the pre-existence of Christ? What can we say about Jesus before the first Christmas? Well, we can say, first of all, that prior to Christ coming into the earth, that he shared all the fullness of God's attributes. What we would say of God the Father from all eternity past, we can also say of the Son, because they are one and the same. We look at the first, the first words in the scripture, in the beginning was God. He is eternal. Before anything else was brought, there is God. In dwelling in all eternity. And so we can say that of Christ in the beginning was Christ, which is exactly what John does in his gospel. And so we think about Jesus coming into the earth. We are talking about all the fullness of God's attributes in Christ as he is one with the Father. Um, we could think about any of his attributes We've already talked a little bit about him being eternal, that he is without beginning, without end. We can say that of Christ in all eternity. He was there. We talk of the holiness of God, that he is set apart. He is perfect. We can say that of Christ, that he too is infinitely holy, infinitely perfect in all of his ways. Um, I know I've referenced this one before as well, but you, you know the familiar scene in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and the angels are there ascribing to the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And John tells us in John 12 that that was Christ whom Isaiah saw. The holiness of God is the holiness of Christ. And so prior to his coming, he was holy he was perfect in all of his ways for all eternity. 
We talk of the power of God, that he is all-powerful, that there is nothing that is too hard for him. Um, I don't know, the last few nights you go out and you look up at the stars and you, you remind yourself that God breathed these out and that he calls them by name and that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That could be said of Christ prior to his coming. He is all-powerful, as is the Father and the Spirit, who are three in one. We could talk of the omniscience of Christ prior to his coming, that he knew everything. If you um, think of this in the negative, it's that he has never learned anything. He cannot learn anything. Uh, we were talking this past week about, did God ever have a, a, a new thought? And no, he could not have a new thought because that would imply that he didn't know something. So there is never a new thought for God. Um, he is all-knowing. He knows the beginning to the end. And the Psalms as well are, are rich with the reminder of our God, of Christ, in eternity past, would have been all-knowing. Psalm 139 tells us, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. We can say that of Christ the Son prior to his coming. He was all-knowing. He is all-knowing. There is nothing that he could learn because he knows all things. We could talk of the unchangeableness of God, that another one of his attributes, that he is unchanging. There has never been a shift in the character of God. Never, uh, never uh, we sang this morning, no shadow in his presence. That is true of Christ from all eternity prior to his coming into the earth. James 1.17 tells us, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And you think of the good gifts of God, um, every good and perfect gift. How can you not think of his own Son, perfect, holy, unchanging, coming down into the earth, being clothed in human flesh? We talk of the love of God, that he is love. And so it isn't that God uh, needed creatures to, to become loving towards, but from all eternity past, God was overflowing with love, even as, as the Father beholds the Son, and the Son, the Spirit, and the Spirit, the Father. There is this eternal, unending love forever and ever before Christ had ever come into the world. John, in his letters, tells us in 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. And so it isn't that love comes into existence as God creates, but love was eternally present within the Godhead. Christ, forever before his coming, was love. 
Psalm 138.8 says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Christ, prior to coming, was love forever and ever, without beginning. Christ, we could say, also was infinitely just and righteous. Again, James tells us, For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God, dwelling in the unapproachable light of his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. We could say this of Christ prior to his coming at Christmas time. From all eternity, Christ dwelling in the perfection of his justice and his righteousness. We could talk of his sovereignty over all things, another attribute of God. Psalms 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. And we could say this of Christ, the Son. From all eternity past, infinitely powerful, infinitely sovereign, even as creation comes into existence, Christ exercises rule over it. And so we can say, first of all, of the Son, prior to his coming, that he shared all the attributes of our God. And what is our response to this? As followers of Christ, what should be our response as we think about this infinite worth of our Savior? One of the things that I think we need to do more of is simply take time to praise the Lord for who he is. And I was convicted of this this past week. Oftentimes, at nighttime, I try to, you know, we do the nighttime routine, and, and uh, if Dad does it, it usually drags on another hour. Uh, for some reason, I don't know why that always happens, but try to, t- you know, the boys are on their bunks. You got the two older on top and the little guys on the bottoms. And so I try to just, you know, go there, and they each get to pick one song, uh, we had to end silly songs because that got crazy, you know. If you start doing Old MacDonald or something, then everyone's jumping around and pillows are flying. So we just try to do a song of praise, um, you know, your love, O oh Lord, or um, Nathan's favorite is Take Me Into the Holy of Holies. So we just sing a song. And I, and I found as I was praying for them at night that my prayers often were um, prayer requests for them or maybe things that we're thankful for, that we have a warm bed to sleep in. And I was convicted that I had not been simply praising the Lord with them in prayer, just ascribing to God his worth, ascribing to Christ uh, the beauty of his character, of his attributes. And, and I think we often miss that in our prayers, that we, we can jump to the requests and even to the thanksgiving, which is all important. But have you ever taken time just to simply praise God? For who he is. Um, Jesus, in instructing his disciples to pray, would say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. There is, this, there is this place of hallowing the name of God in prayer, and Jesus places it at the beginning, scribing to the Lord, God, you are just. There is nothing within you that is darkness. You are not even tempted by evil. God, we praise you. God, you are eternal. We are so temporal, like a vapor, but God is not like that. Take time in your prayers um, together with your children. Let them hear you praising God for who he is, ascribing to him 
his own attributes, of Christ himself. This will be our great work in glory, will it not? That we will, with perfect voices, without sin, with glorified bodies, that you could just imagine, I mean, you think of the, the, the beauty of a choir that has practiced and trained their voices and, 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 and practiced working together for many hours. I think if you take that and times it by 10,000, when you are in heaven and all of the hosts of the angels are there and all of the redeemed from Adam to the final uh, one to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and we're all there and we lift up our voices in praise to Christ, how wonderful will that be? And we will be mostly ascribing to the Lord his worth. And so take time this season. Um, maybe on your tree, just, you know, on a, I know some of you are very creative. I'm not very creative. My idea of, of, of being creative is, you know, cutting some construction paper in squares and getting one of those silver Sharpies and writing on it. You know, that looks pretty elaborate to me. But, um, you know, just, just take some time. Make some ornaments, the, the, the attributes of God, and put it on your tree and let your children help you um, and tell them about who this God is that has come. So that's first, and then secondly, we could say of the Son before uh, he, beca he became man, he came and dwelt among us, we could say that Christ enjoyed the fellowship and communion of the Holy Trinity. And this is so, uh, it's hard for us, to, well we can't fully understand it of course, but when you just stop and think about it, there are so many beautiful implications of this. But um, we see that Jesus is eternal. We see that he shares these attributes with God. And in, in John 17, Jesus makes these statements in his prayer that give you just a glimpse of what this pre-existence would have been like. Um, what, what was happening before creation, before the coming of Christ into the earth. John 17, 5, Jesus says this. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And there in that request of Christ, he is not simply saying, Can I share in your glory once I die and rise? But he is pointing back prior to creation itself and saying that glory that we share, that, that communion, that fellowship, Lord, would you restore me back into that? He is pointing to a reality that existed before creation itself, before uh, Adam and Eve were ever created, before Israel was ever formed as a nation, before the prophets ever spoke of the coming Messiah, Christ enjoy the glory and the fellowship of his Father. Again, in, in the passage later uh, on, John 17, 24, Jesus praying for us, for those who would believe upon him. Listen to what he prays for us. John 17, 24. This isn't just for the disciples. He specifically says also for those who will believe. He prays this. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Christ prays that we would behold the glory of God, his glory, and that we would, and he, he bases this on because God loved him before the foundations of the world. He, he roots his request in the fact that the Father loved the Son before anything was brought into existence. And, and, we, and we don't get a lot more glimpses into, I mean, what did that look like? We can't fathom it. Um, but I think there are things in this life we get maybe small glimpses of something of the communion of the, the Trinity, the communion of God that he would have enjoyed from all eternity past. And I believe marriage is one of the, the instruments of God and, and of course, what we experience now is, is so affected by sin, but initially, in, in perfection, marriage was to reflect something of the communion that the, the, God, the Godhead enjoyed and enjoys. Um, you know, I, I obviously won't go into detail, but um, after meeting my wife, and, and just knowing that this was the woman that I wanted to marry, and, and uh, having talked to to her dad and, and uh, you know, just being terrified. I think we were in Jasper and, I don't know, I was going to sleep in the tent and I didn't bother setting it up because I just, I don't know, was too distracted, I guess, slept on an air mattress on the ground because they were there and, and in proposing and, and just that entire process of, of being married. Um, when you enter into that covenant and the, the intimacy and the beauty of it uh, there is nothing else that can compare. And, and I want to encourage you, young people. You are told today that sexual intimacy is something that is to be um, played around with. It's something to be experienced at your own disposal. It is something that someone can even demand from you. But sexual intimacy outside of the covenant of marriage is, is cheap. It's destructive because it is a tainted picture of the relationship that God has enjoyed from all eternity. Don't buy the lie that, that sex apart from God's own design is going to be satisfying, is going to give you a sense of uh, fulfillment. Rather, it will become um, something that you despise. And, and I know that this, you know, even within marriage, there are struggles at times. And, and yet, I think of, of uh, just the Lord preserving my wife and I, and I don't say that to boast, I just say that to say, to the, especially you young people, it's worth waiting for. And as you experience the, the beauty of marriage in that covenant relationship, I think we are to get a glimpse of something of the, the beauty of God's own fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And, and um, 
For us, uh, you know, you, you think back on those early days of, of marriage, especially the, maybe the honeymoon, and, and just wanting it to go on forever, right? Not wanting to have to think about uh, all the realities of life and marriage and money management and work. And I think for God in all eternity past, enjoyed perfect, unbroken communion and fellowship and love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it is that relationship that we are being brought into through the gospel, through Christ's death and resurrection. We get glimpses of it maybe with our families at times, with your children, um, or, or maybe some really close friends that when you visit with them, when you're together, it seems like the time just vanishes away. Or moments with your, your children when, when they're getting along and they're you know, playing nicely and not trying to kill one another and, and they're, they're, they're uh, maybe even coming up and, and uh, hugging you or telling, the, telling you that you love them. And these glimpses of the beauty of fellowship, of friendship, I think those are glimpses of something that God would have had from all eternity. The example of a fire... Um, we, we enjoy natural gas in our culture, and maybe you have a gas fireplace or something that you've watched, and when you see a fire that has all of the fuel that it needs, it has all the oxygen, it has the gas there, and you, you see it, it would be foolish to try to add to it, wouldn't it? You know, you wouldn't, if you had a gas fireplace burning, you wouldn't go over and try to add some wood onto it or maybe, you know, blow some oxygen onto it. You just rather step back and enjoy the heat. You enjoy the, the beauty of the flame. And I think when we think about the eternal nature of God enjoying this communion, it, it is something of an eternal flame that we are meant to receive from, to delight in, not to add to. And so... We see Christ enjoying the fullness of God's attributes. And secondly, we see that Christ would have forever enjoyed the fullness of communion with the Father and the Spirit. And again, this has amazing implications for us. I don't know if, if you're like me and sometimes you feel like you're running out of love for your children for maybe parents or grandparents, you feel like, like you're being depleted and, and you're not sure if you're going to have anything else to give to this relationship or maybe it's a coworker or a boss or maybe it's, maybe it's a, a, a government or someone that you know you've ought to love and you feel like I don't have any love in my heart for them. What do you do? Many today say, well, find someone that you know, rekindles that flame in your heart and, and go after that relationship and end the one that you're struggling with and that's kind of the approach. But rather than that, call out to God who has forever and ever and ever enjoyed fullness of love, fullness of fellowship and ask Him to pour His love into your heart. He has a limitless amount of love. And if we will repent of our own attempt to patch up our relationships, to patch up our lives, if we will just come before Him and acknowledge that we can't, 
that we have failed, that we have broken uh, His law, and that we need a deliverance, we need a resurrection, we need love that is not from within us, but that comes from Him. And we humble ourselves before Him and we say, God, fill me with your eternal love. May my marriage reflect the beauty of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Help me to love these children, Father, as you have forever loved your Son. And that's really John's argument, that if we say we've loved God, if we love God, if we know Him, then naturally His love would spill over into us and we would, we would spill over into those around us. One of the, the, the basic evidences that we have truly encountered Christ Even as you think about this relationship that God has from all eternity, uh, we talk of the glory of God, and I think sometimes in our flesh, we, maybe we grow tired of hearing of the glory of God. We want to hear a little bit about me, or I want to feel a little bit you know, uh, important or, or, or special, and, and we, want, we want that, and we feel like maybe God, like, is he selfish in that he's always ascribing to himself glory? And of course, on the one hand, we would say, well, he is the only one of his kind. There is no other God. He is the only eternal one. We are all creatures, so naturally, he would be the only one who can ascribe glory to himself. But because God is three in one, the way in which he ascribes glory to himself is selfless. And it is tremendous. You think about God the Father delighting to exalt the Son. The Son, not, not proclaiming His own agenda as He comes and walks, but rather ascribing glory to the Father, living in light of His Father's goodwill. And the Spirit of God, not looking to exalt Himself, but rather taking from the Son and giving it to the redeemed and making Christ known among his people. The Spirit delights to exalt Christ. And in the end, Christ will take all things, all the redeemed, and he will hand it over to the Father as an act of his love and commitment to his Father. And so what you are caught up in is this eternal promise that the Father would give to His Son a token of His love, a bride. And the Son, out of love for His Father, says, I will go and I will redeem that bride. I will die for her so that you might be exalted. And the Son comes and dies and the Spirit, moving upon the hearts of men, raises us to life, gives us faith, causes us to see Christ as glorious, to worship Him, to be sanctified, that we would be a bride ready for the Son. And so you see, we're, we're, we're caught up in this amazing work, amazing gift of a triune God. And so as we close, uh, I encourage you, take time this season to behold Christ, to think of his eternal attributes, to ascribe to him glory, and to ask that our relationships would reflect something of God's relationship. And so let us pray uh, as we close, and we'll have a song.
thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.